leaders of our DVD group, and then there's Jeff and Nancy Hicks. Let's give them all a warm welcome. And they have been exceedingly faithful to the word for many, many years, and they know some of the rough and tumble like you do, and uh, we never take that for granted. We always love to have you. So if you see them, just give them treats, money, just, you know. (laughs) Okay, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 again, because that's where we were Sunday. I'm going to look forward to seeing you guys right after. I'm going to monopolize you for a minute or two. Tonight the subject is generally called the justification of the ungodly, and we're going to get into some close quarters exposition of 1 Corinthians 15. So this is kind of going to dovetail with, did I say hi to Sila too? Is she here? She's not here. She's playing hooky already. Wow. Well, she's here. Close quarter is exposition of 1 Corinthians 15, and this will dovetail with Sunday morning on a specific passage. And I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, just to start with. Then we're going to back up and get the con context of this whole thing but it's called the justification of the ungodly this is the 76th message of better call paul and the question that underlies the basis of this series do the epistles of paul as the book of revelation and the gospel of john present a vision of jesus christ in his universally saving significance And we are seeing this answered in the affirmative over and over again. And one day I'll be content that we've answered it thoroughly in the affirmative. If it's the case, then this is the vision without which the people perish. Without this vision, without living in the light of this vision of an all-saving, enthroned Savior, then the people of God tend to simply stay in the Adamic ontology and try to restructure it or reconfigure it to try to make it moral or try to make it righteous or to try to make it Christianized. And that's not the Christian life. And therefore, there's no impact from the Christian life. So this is how vital this image is. The justification of the ungodly is what God does. Romans 4, 5. It's his thing. Romans eight thirty one to 32, who lays anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God who justifies, God who delivers, God who transforms. So that little phrase, the justification of the ungodly, is going to take up our thoughts tonight, even though it's only found specifically in Romans 4, 5. So let's take a couple moments of silent preparation. Father, we thank you for the great privilege of gathering together. We thank you for bringing our Mississippi friends and contingent to us safely. We ask that you'll grant them a great blessing in their stay. And we're grateful for the opportunity for the faithful believers that are so faithful to attend here and to listen to the word of God and to become doers of it by the grace of God. We ask that that'll be the case tonight. For we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15. I want to just read 24 to 28 in my translation just to give us a point of reference. Then the telos, that's the end. That's the telos division. One of the words for Jesus Christ is telos. And we know that from Revelation 22:13. The telos. Then comes the telos. That's the a division of resurrection, the final division of the resurrection. When he, that's Jesus Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, 
whenever he will have brought to nothing all opposing rule and authority and power. Now that includes sin as a power, death as a power, the impulsive desire of the flesh as a suprahuman power, all Adamic and demonic ontology, including oppressive human governments, as well as demonic ontology, will be brought to nothing. Verse 25, for he, Christ the firstfruits is being spoken of, from a reference to 1523, Christ the firstfruits must reign. And what we proved on Sunday morning is that this is a picture of the enthroned lamb, which is just as much in Paul as it is in Revelation. The whole heart of Revelation is an enthroned lamb on the throne of God. And Paul does the same thing for in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been slaughtered or killed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast with unleavened bread. And we'll return to that probably on Sunday morning because it's extremely significant. So here Christ is known as the lamb. If you connect 1 Corinthians 5, 7 with 15, 25, for he must reign. That is from his throne until all his enemies are placed beneath his feet. This is a an allusion to Psalm 110.1, which is probably the most oft-quoted psalm in the New Testament. Verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And now with a direct quote from Psalm 8.6, for he, God the Father, has, has put everything in subjection under his feet. You'll notice that the reference to Psalm 110.1 is a futuristic sense, but the reference to Psalm 8.6 is a done deal. Paul blends these together, so there is a now and a not yet about this reigning of Christ. When he says all things in subjection, he says, in verse, let's start again with verse 26. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for he, that's God the Father, has put everything in subjection under his, that's the son's feet. When he says all things in subjection, it is obvious that he, the father, who puts everything under him, the son, is the exception. Now when, and that's a very strong when, not if, when everything, tapanta is the word, very familiar to us, I hope, tapanta, That's certainly all things. Every single thing is probably a good translation. Every single thing. Now when, not if, every single thing will have been put in subjection to him, then the son will become willingly subject to the one who subjected everything under him in order that God will be all in all. This has... This passage right here that I just read to you has the furthest scope and the furthest reach of all the eschatological scriptures in the Bible. And it gives the justification motif in Romans and in Galatians and elsewhere a cosmic dimension, a worldwide dimension, and a universal dimension. Now, one of the things I've been doing the morning, one of my morning projects is to read Ernst Kasemann in his Romans commentary, which was kind of groundbreaking in 1980. And I'm working my way through that, agreeing with some, disagreeing with other things. Some things are sublime and fantastic and challenging. Others need to be tweaked and improved upon. And in fact, today, Jim McClory, the troll, I mean, the toll booth operator said, that he believed he would cast his vote for Jürgen Moltmann for the theologian of the 20th century. And I'm not inclined to argue too much with that. I kind of agree with that. But Ernst Kasemann was his teacher, Moltmann's teacher. And he made some pioneer progress. But he said this on page 81 of his Romans 1980s series or commentary. He said, this text, referring to 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, 
This text is to be regarded as a key passage for the whole of Paul's doctrine of justification, since it lays bare the connection of this doctrine with apocalyptic and explains its cosmic dimension. That's one of the main things that we're discovering now is the cosmic universal dimension of justification rather than the individualistic, which has been handed down to us from the Reformation era. And so with regard to Paul's doctrine of justification, that's what he calls it, and I want to qualify that word justification. In fact, I've got 12 points that kind of exploded recently, and I'm going to give them to you right now. With regard to Paul's doctrine of justification, here are some tweaks, or we would call them fine-tuning, fine-tunings. First, Kasemann, that's K-A-S-E-M-A-N-N, and some people say Kasemann, some people say Kasemann. I say Kasemann because it's closer to the way Germans pronounce it and the way Jürgen Moltmann pronounced it. Kasemann consistently acknowledges the importance in Romans of the theme, the justification of the ungodly. And this itself is kind of a slap in the face of religiosity, the justification of the ungodly. The phrase is found in Romans 4, 5 specifically, but the theme runs throughout, especially Romans, but also Galatians, and even in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, we have a little reference to it. Second, Justification is more than just a legal imputation or a forensic imputation of righteousness, even if the righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Justification is more than just a legal imputation or a judicial imputation of righteousness, even if that righteousness is Christ's own righteousness. Justification is more than a forensic legal imputation. Third tweak. Justification includes the gift of life itself. It includes the gift of life, but the life is the life of Christ himself. Life from the dead. And that's why Romans 5.18, and probably if we're going to look at key verses In all of our study of Better Call Paul, Romans 5.18 and 19 is the heart of the heart of the matter, as we're also seeing with the divine missions. Justification includes the gift of life, which is why Romans 5.18 speaks of life-giving justification. Life-giving justification. If justification were just a legal imputation, then it wouldn't be a life-giving justification gift from God. It's a life-giving justification, and it's for everyone, for all. So again, Romans 5.18 speaks of life-giving justification, and this is also why Galatians 3.21 speaks of the impotence of the law or the Torah to do two things, either to justify or to make alive. Only God can justify, only God can make alive. What the law could not do, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh of his son. And that means he condemned the sin as a power over the human race, as an oppressive power. And this is, the way I'm going to do it tonight is teach, go from obscurity to clarity, because I'm going to hit this again tomorrow night. You start with obscurity, you're kind of scratching your head about certain things, and that's good, because we go from obscurity to clarity. Fourth, justification is not, as it has been wrongly divided, separate from sanctification. Justification is not separate from sanctification but a part of the same gracious act of God towards sinful human beings. Justification is not separate from sanctification, but a part of the same gracious act of God for sinful humans. Fifth, justification signifies a liberation 
of those called the ungodly from sin, capital S-I-N, as an enslaving power. Justification signifies a liberation of the ungodly from sin as an enslaving power. Sixth, the justification of the ungodly is an act of divine deliverance. It's an act of divine deliverance on behalf of the helpless, the sinner, and the enemies of God. Which emphatically includes the apparently pious. Paul goes after them pretty stringently. I'll say that again. The justification of the ungodly is an act of divine deliverance on behalf of the helpless, the sinner, and the enemies of God, Romans 5, 6, 5, 8, which emphatically includes the apparently pious to the elder brother in the parable of the waiting father, also known as the parable of the prodigal son or the returning son. The father says to this elder brother, son, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. That's what God thinks of even the self-righteous. Seventh, that the justification of the ungodly is primarily an act of divine deliverance. Please notice the word act of divine deliverance. Since the justification of the ungodly is primarily an act of divine deliverance, That fact is most notably shown by understanding and by the insight that the righteousness of God, and that's the term, one of the key words in Romans. This is going to set us up for a a future study of Romans. Dikaya sune. Dikaya sune is the righteousness of God. It's often at least translated as the righteousness of God. Theu. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who, to all those who believe, whether Jew or Greek, and that does not mean exclusively to those that believe, as we've been teaching. For therein is the righteousness of God. Theu. I'll look at it, spell it for you in the English transliteration. Dikaya. Sune, theu, the righteousness of God, which again is not really a good translation, but we'll just do it for the time being. So the justification of the ungodly is an act of divine deliverance, is most notably shown by understanding that dikasune theu, which is apocalyptically revealed in the gospel, Romans 1.17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, the dikaiosune theu is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And it's my contention that that faithfulness is the faithfulness of God shown in Christ and the faithfulness of Christ, which continues in the people whose faith is elicited by the gospel. So we become participators of the faithfulness of Christ. So, the justification that the justification of the ungodly is primary an act of divine deliverance is most notably shown by understanding that the righteousness of God, which is apocalyptically revealed in the gospel, apocalyptically reveals means, but the very word apocalyptic denotes a new creation. It denotes a universality. It denotes a cosmic dimension. It, it denotes powers in opposition, and the power of God overcoming supernatural powers. It also denotes a change of eons or a change of ages and a change in universal conditions. And so, justification of the ungodly, that it is an act of divine deliverance, is shown by understanding that dikaya sune theu, which is revealed in the gospel, is not an attribute of God, Primarily, it is not primarily an attribute of God. There is a doctrine being born here tonight. That's why you're not hearing some familiar things. This is a doctrine. It's being born tonight. And so it's not familiar, but it will become familiar. And I'll be giving much more documentation to it. 
the righteousness of God, the kasunetheu, is not primarily an attribute of God. And therefore, the interpretations of Romans, the whole book, based on being a study of the righteousness of God as an attribute or the justice of God as an attribute, are already off base. The righteousness of God, dikaiosunetheu, righteousness is considered to be an act of God and not primarily an attribute. And that's important. You say, where do you document that? Well, we've already done that from Psalm 98, 1 to 3. And I think even more stringently, we have it in Psalm twenty-two thirty-two. In Psalm 22, 32, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 21, 32, it says, they will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, dash, what he has done. Dikaiosune, what he has done. That which begins with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That which begins with the suffering Messiah ends with a generation proclaiming that he has done it, that he is proclaiming his righteousness, which is what he has done. And so the righteousness of God is not primarily seen as an attribute of God, as much as it is seen as an act of divine deliverance, unconditional salvation toward undeserving humanity and helpless, enslaved creation at large. Justification has a cosmic dimension, or we miss the whole gospel. The Tanakh, which is the Jewish Bible made up of Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Torah is the law, Nevi'im, the prophets, Ketuvim, the writings. The Tanakh version, which I have on my Bible works, says, for he has acted. So the Jewish understanding is the same as the Greek understanding, that righteousness of God means he has acted. The gospel is the act of God in Christ and an unconditional salvation and a deliverance from superhuman powers against which we are absolutely helpless unaided. It may be argued that what the Lord has done or accomplished is the new creation. In fact, Young's literal translation translates Psalm 22:32 as they will proclaim his righteousness, that is, what he has made, what he has made, poeo, what he has made. When Jesus said tetelestai, he meant several things. He meant that the act of God in Christ was finished. He meant that redemption in that sense was finished. He meant that the reconciliation of all things is an inevitability. But he also meant that this agony through which he had just passed was the birth pangs of a new creation, which is now being made. That's the righteousness of God. Psalm 68, 18, which Paul alludes to in Ephesians 4, 8, just as importantly, which is Psalm 67, 19 in the LXX, not to confuse you. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts in men. Yes, for those also that do not believe, they become the dwelling of the Lord God. My question is, and it's very important because this is throughout the whole New Testament. What if the Kai, which is and in the Greek, when it says that he ascended on high, it's speaking of Yahweh. Paul says that Yahweh is Christ. He ascended on high after a conquest, after achieving a victory. He led captivity captive. And that means that all that was in captivity was led captive or liberated by him. All of creation, all of humanity. The text in the Hebrew and the Greek says, and he received gifts from men. Paul, however, looks at the other side of the coin and he says he gave gifts to mankind even to the rebellious, and that it has to be emphasized, even to the rebellious, and that means, as one translation says, those that do not believe. The most rebellious Jew that ever lived was the most 
notorious sinner that ever lived. His name was Saul of Tarsus, and God gave that rebel the gift of apostleship to the pagans, which he fulfilled, which occasioned a later writer to say, Christ Je- it's a faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So my question is, what if the chi or the Greek word and of Psalm 67:19 is epexegetical so that the phrase is he received becomes gave in Ephesians 4:8 to mankind, that is the rebellious. And then he goes on to say in that passage, he makes the rebellious included in the gifting. But then he goes on further and says, it is the rebellious in whom the Lord will dwell. And that means it denotes that there's going to be a transformation of the rebellious. One of the most profound things Jürgen Moltmann ever said that struck me, and I see it throughout the scriptures, the punishment of evildoers is transformation by grace. This has to do with the justification of the ungodly. We have already seen with the help of Kazaman that to those who believe in the phrase the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In fact, I'm not sure that it's the gospel that's the power of salvation, but Christ is the power of salvation. As 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ who is the power of God for salvation. The reason I think that that might be the right translation is 1 Corinthians one twenty four, where Paul concludes, the Jews are looking for a sign, something powerful. The Greeks are looking for wisdom, something wise. But Christ is both the power and the wisdom of God, the power of God. So when Paul says in Romans one seventeen and 16 that it is the power of God for salvation, or Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, this does not exclude those who do not believe. Now, people assume that, well, it's to them who believe, so therefore those who do not believe are excluded. That's not, I called Paul. He said, that's not what I meant. I called him. I asked him. And then he said, well, why don't you read Romans 5.18? Why don't you read Romans 11.32? Why don't you read 1 Corinthians 15.24 to 28? God being all in all. Why don't you read those other passages to show that I'm not exclusive? I'm not thinking of a God who excludes the rebellious and the unbeliever. I mean, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died. You remember his number. I don't. I forgot it. Ricky, you're going to have to tell me what it is again. What is his number again? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's right. Thank you for that. See? Wow. Thank you, Ricky. So then, it is one, two, three, triune God, five, 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 grace, 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 five, 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 grace, 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 grace. So I called him and I said, hey, Paul. We need you down here. So, once again, we have learned that the phrase to those who believe, in the phrase, Christ is the power of God for salvation to those who believe, does not exclude those who do not believe. Especially given Romans 11.32, which unveils God's salvific wisdom. His saving wisdom did this, and it blew Paul away. In Romans eleven thirty three to 36, he shut up everything in a maximum security prison called disobedience. Disobedience, which means unbelief, in order that he might have mercy upon all. So Romans eleven thirty two gives the lie to the doctrine that believers are exclusively the objects of God's favor and redemption. So, God's salvific wisdom in the imprisonment of all humankind, Jews and Gentiles alike, 
precisely in unbelief. He can't show mercy unless they're disobedient. But the mercy that he shows isn't just a condoning of their ungodliness and an imputation of righteousness so they still stumble through life just as much as they did before. No, this justification is an element of a larger thing called sanctification, something Douglas Campbell got a hold of. That's why you got to go, you got to keep going to the next generation. I don't care who it is that pioneers doctrine, it's going to be trumped in the next generation. Somebody else is going to get more in the next generation. That's the way it is. When I'm gone, there'll be much more coming from the next generation. When others have gone, when Kazaman went, There's fantastic new insights with a new generation of theologians. And I personally make it my aim to stay on board with those things and to stay studied up on some of these discoveries and then put it to the Holy Spirit in prayer and tell him to give me insights and that I may communicate those insights to you. Eighth, the justification of the ungodly is not the justification of the behavior or the character of the sinful. But neither is it the mere forensic imputation of righteousness without a view to the transformation of the sinner. Now, believe it or not, this is a liberating doctrine. If you don't understand it yet, it's a liberating doctrine. Justification doesn't just give you a legal righteousness and then leave you. And then you're just expected to keep on sinning, but every time you sin, which is thousands of times a day, you get to rebound and keep coming, and you get back into what? I don't know what. That's not a right use. That's not what God intended through John's gospel. That's not what God intended through 1 John 1, 9 either, at all. Because justification is not the mere forensic or legal imputation of righteousness without a view to the transformation of the sinner. Ninth, perhaps a better phrase than the justification of the ungodly would be the transformation of evil into the supreme good. Let me say that. That's the heart of the matter. Perhaps a better term or interpretive phrase then the justification of the ungodly would be the transformation of evil into the supreme good, for that is ultimately the accomplishment of God in justification. His justice is not retributive, it's creative. It's the justice of a creator who calls things that do not exist into existence. An evildoer is called into existence as something that didn't exist before, a new creation. God's justice is creative. That's why we've discovered in John 5, 28 and 29, those who do evil will be raised or resurrected to judgment. The judgment there is not a condemnation, but an acquittal. They're raised to acquittal. And those who have done the good, which means they have embraced the truth of the gospel because God has elicited faith in them, those that have done the good will be raised to life eternal. Both The doers of evil and the doers of good are raised to life. But the emphasis on the doers of evil is they they are raised to an acquittal. An acquittal that was already experienced by those who believed in their lives, during their lives on earth. So John 5, 28 and 29 does not have, H-A-L-V-E, the human race into two halves, one condemned And one justified, not by a long stretch. That's why in Acts 17.31, when Paul the Apostle says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. If righteousness means what we think it means here, then he will judge the world by deliverance of the world. And he has assured us of this. He doesn't assure you or comfort you with the knowledge of eternal damnation. He comforts us with the knowledge that God will judge the world in righteousness or in an act of deliverance through Jesus, the man whom he raised from 
the dead. And that's where we're going in 1 Corinthians 15. We're not too far tonight, but we'll get there. So ninth, better than the justification of the ungodly is the transformation of evil into the supreme good. So we could say God who justifies the ungodly, we could just as easily say God who transforms the evil into the supreme good. Would you say that Saul of Tarsus was evil as a blasphemous persecutor? I would say yes. So did he. He looked back on his life and saw that. But what would you say about the man who said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me? You would have to say that God transformed the evil into the supreme good because the supreme good is Christ. I have to keep repeating that in many forms because... It's one of those things that's too good to be believed. Tenth, the interpretive phrase, justification by faith, which came to us courtesy of the reformers, many of them, although we can't blame it on all of them. The interpretive phrase, justification by faith, has arguably been, and I think we've shown it pretty clearly, superseded by justification by the Messiah's faithfulness. That the idea in the gospel then is not the faith of the sinful person that justifies, but the sinless faithfulness of the Christ that justifies the sinner. So I think that that, thankfully, in theological history, we have gone back to Paul And then we've gone back to the patristic theologians and the people between Paul and the patristic theologians who are represented by the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles represent an evolving viewpoint from Paul between Paul and the patristics. And you'll be amazed when we get to that passage, the pastorals. I'm going to give some attention to it. So 10th, the interpretive phrase justification by faith has arguably been superseded by justification by Messiah's faithfulness. The obsolete and incorrect interpretive point that the source and means of the justification of sin-enslaved mankind is sin-enslaved man's faith has been radically readjusted and even reversed by the construal of the subjective in Pistis Christu as being the faithfulness of Christ, not as faith in Christ. It is not the faith of the ungodly or the sinner's faith that justifies her. In other words, it is the faithfulness or the fidelity of Christ. The 11th tweak on this doctrine of justification. All of this gives the gospel the character of an unconditional grace. All of this gives the gospel the character of an unconditional grace on the part of God for sinful humankind who are radically incapacitated and helplessly enslaved to sin, which Paul overwhelmingly uses in the singular, hamartia, where we get the theological term hermartiology, which we'll get into. Paul has an anthropology. Paul has an an anthropological view of salvation. Paul has a soteriology about salvation. He has an eschatology, which is about the final things. He has a pneumatology about the Holy Spirit. He has a Christology about Christ. He has a theology. He has all of these things that we're going to maybe hit on Thursdays in the future when we get into theology class. But... Eleventh, all of this gives the gospel the character of an unconditional grace on the part of God for sinful humankind who are radically incapacitated, otherwise known under Calvin as totally depraved and helplessly enslaved to sin, to death, and to the invincible power of the impulsive desire of the flesh. May I say that again? The invincible, no one can overcome it. Not a stoic not a Pharisee, not a guru. No one can overcome the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is not primarily a sexual impulse, but it's rather the impulse to oppose God and one's neighbor. 
to vaunt oneself in arrogant pride against the creator. And that's an impulsive desire that is invincible, unbeatable. So let me start 11 again. 11th, all of this gives the gospel the character of an unconditional grace, and grace not only as gift, but as a power. Grace itself is a power. All this gives the gospel the character of an unconditional grace on the part of God for sinful humankind who are radically incapacitated and helplessly enslaved to sin, to death, and to the invincible power of the impulsive desire of the flesh. Call it IDF, if you will. And I say invincible only in this sense. It is invincible, this desire of the flesh, in the sense that the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, cannot be defeated by unaided man, however pious or moral or law-abiding, or by any amount of human character, or by watching any number of Hollywood movies which involve the so-called triumph of the human spirit, which is almost always a celebration of human insolence, arrogance, and blasphemy against God and his grace. Okay. Twelfth. This is kind of an inclusio. If indeed 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, is to be regarded as a key passage for the whole of Paul's doctrine of justification, since it lays bare the connection of this doctrine with apocalyptic and explains its cosmic dimension. If that's true, and I think we've demonstrated that pretty much is what Cosman said, then Paul's doctrine of justification ultimately is a doctrine of apocatastasis pantone, a universal restoration, the restoration of all things. Again, I'll say that again. If indeed 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28 is to be regarded as a key passage for the whole of Paul's doctrine of justification, and I use that term advisedly because it means much more than the word justification, since it lays bare the connection of this doctrine with apocalyptic and explains its cosmic or universal dimension, then Paul's doctrine of justification ultimately is a doctrine of the restoration of all things. And why not? God spoke through all the prophets univocally about the restoration of all things. Never forget our study on apocatastasis, especially as it came through Ilaria Ramelli's fantastic study and very expensive book. Now, since we have, wow, I didn't think I'd get through that 12. But you know what that's a testimony to, don't you? Your attentiveness. That's right. That's correct. Your attentiveness. Even you, Larry, your attentiveness. <laughs> All right. Now we're prepared for a close quarters engagement. That's what we'd like to avoid sometimes. Preachers like to avoid a close quarters engagement with the aforementioned key passage. When I took karate at the University of Vermont, Weichi Ru, the Japanese karate, I never liked the sparring because it was messy. I didn't like, and I, I don't really like confrontation. But I liked the kata. I liked the forms. I liked the exercises. They were grueling and very difficult. And I liked the discipline, and I liked that. And the sparring was like, I don't like getting into close quarters combat, especially if there's a girl I have to spar with. Because I know she's going to beat the hell out of me, and you know that you really can't. Well, anyways. But uh, there's a part of, I've betrayed that whole part of my life because now I love close quarter combat engagement with the scriptures. What do they say? If they go against what I think, then I'll let them beat me up. If they support what I think I'm getting as an insight, all the better. But we're going to do a close quarters engagement with the aforementioned key passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. But how do you engage that passage close quarter? 
by context. And I said, well, the context starts in verse 20. And then I said, no, it doesn't. It starts in 19. And then I said, no, it doesn't. It starts in 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. So this is our next project in Paul. 1 Corinthians 15. Notice the translation, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, Paul says, I am making known. Norizo is the word he uses. It's a revelatory verb. It's an apocalyptic verb. I'm making known, siblings, the gospel with which I evangelized you, which you also received, in which you stand, and through which you are being saved, unless you believe for nothing. Now, what does he mean by that? that this is almost impossible to interpret if you don't have the sense which is where, why I'm very glad that Empress Claudia gave me the Mirror Bible. I am relying upon it as, a very, as an invaluable source. The Mirror Bible, which is much of the New Testament, not all of it, but good chunks of the New Testament, in which Francois Dutois, the author, gives the sense in a way that I have never seen quite as good in all my life as Nehemiah 8.8. He does the, the work of reading the scriptures and then giving the sense. You can exegete a scripture and still not have the sense of what's being said. You can get it letter by letter, word by word, get all of the tenses, the moods, the cases, the voices, and then go to a lexicon and look up every one of the words, and you still have no, you know further than reading the King James. In fact, Tomorrow night, I might even show you where the King James shines and outshines every other English translation in a particular verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, but that's coming up. The Mirror Bible, quote, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 2, he captures the sense accurately. Listen carefully to it, because this guy captured the sense. It shows me there's hope for future translations, and that there's actually hope that translators have insights. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2, Mirror Bible. Brothers and sisters, herewith a summary of the good news that I endorse. I announce to you with glad confidence how greatly advantaged you are in Christ. You immediately associated yourselves with this message in which you are now firmly established. In this gospel, you realized your salvation. The words I spoke echoed in your hearts. I now desire to reinforce your faith in order to erase any possible grounds for doubt. Now, the sense is difficult to grasp in most English translations, and my translation didn't grasp it. But I think Monsieur Dutois has done so. The, friend, the gospel is not true. Listen, these are my observations after that. The gospel is not true because you believed it. It's true because Christ died for our sins in fulfillment of the promise of the scripture. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. Psalm 22. Many other passages. Secondly, the gospel is not untrue if you don't believe it, it's only untrue if Jesus is not risen from the dead. That's the sense of what Paul is saying here. Because you know what they were told? They were told by certain Epicureans, you know, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, Epicureanism seeks pleasure as the highest good in life. You seek pleasure as the highest good in life. Now, your pleasure may not be sensual it may not be food like the epicurean society it may be it may be shooting it may be sports it may be something that gives you pleasure it may be reading it may be studying theology so i get my i get a lot of pleasure from that but pleasure is the highest good because tomorrow we're dead which means we die and to be dead is dead now that kind of philosophy bled into the corinthians and they began to think, well, there's no universal resurrection from the dead. There, there can't be one. And Paul links the resurrection, the individual resurrection of Jesus Christ with the universal resurrection of all mankind and says one can't happen without the other. 
And so if you guys don't believe in a future universal resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. Your faith is stupid and senseless. Our preaching is vain. And so what the hell? Let's just, let us, let's do that. Let's do what Epicurus said. Let us eat and drink and be happy and don't worry because tomorrow we die. So we seek the best of our pleasures now. Tomorrow we die. The philosophy of the 1960s in the Haight-Ashbury district, which was preceded by the Hague in Holland and then came over to California. It's called the hippie movement. And it's even worse today. The 60s are worse, are are repeated today only 10 times worse with a lot more selfishness and a lot more self-destruction. So that our nation actually does face the possibility of a civil war. Actually does face that possibility. Now, the gospel is not untrue. If you don't believe it, it's untrue if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Now, if I'm going to be Aristotelian and do what Aristotle did, I'm going to follow up and say, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Ergo, the gospel is true. When Paul is, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is reiterating the gospel to the saints in Corinth with an emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which in turn assures them of a universal resurrection in the future. And that resurrection in the future that's universal is not some to damnation and some to life. It's in Christ all will be made alive. And I'm going to show you in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 that you can't play with that, that the emphasis is even more on all than it is on Adam and Christ there. So that the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ is brought to the fore, which only serves to magnify Christ instead of demagnify him, of course. And that's where the King James is good. Read the King James of 1 Corinthians 15, 22 tonight because it's right. The emphasis falls where it should fall. Read it in the New Revised Standard Version, and it's weak and beggarly and bankrupt and misses the point. And then I said, well, let me go to the Greek and see where the strong emphasis lies. And the Greek text agreed with the King James Version. And guess where I got that? I got that from a woman who's a priest, an Episcopal priest for 22 years, named Fletcher Rutledge, I think her name is. And she wrote in a book called Apocalyptic Theology, she wrote this and gave this example, and it's been brewing in my mind ever since. So, I'll give credit where it's due. So as we wind down to a close here, what had happened is that in Corinth, they had begun to doubt in the universal resurrection of the future because they were associating with people who held to the Epicurean idea of the experience of pleasure in this life as the highest good because when you're dead, you're dead. So in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul actually quotes a poet named Menander to support his case. If you look there, you'll see it. Bad company corrupts good morals. But he applied it to this. Hanging out with these guys, these men and women, will corrupt your hope and your doctrine of resurrection. It'll corrupt the gospel. Now, the reason why I think this is good advice is because it's the converse of Proverbs 13.10a. The one who walks with the wise will become wise. You hang out with wise people, people that are wise unto salvation. And it's a positive endorsement, Menander was a positive endorsement of Proverbs 13.20b, which says, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Paul is fighting against a false gospel in Corinth as he's fighting another kind of false gospel in Galatia. He is assuring them of a universal 
resurrection unto life. So those who died or fell asleep in Christ, Mary Helen, your question, those who fell asleep in Christ, Paul said you can be very assured that they'll be raised from the dead. But he also does not exclude those who are not in Christ in this life from being made alive in Christ in bodily resurrection. This squares with everything in John, everything in Revelation. Verse 3, verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen three. For I passed along to you the first things, that is the things of first importance, which you also received with favor. That Christ died for our sins in fulfillment of the promise of the scriptures. That's most notably Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 and Psalm 22. And that he was buried. Isaiah 53, 9. He was, his grave was made with criminals. And on the third day, as the scripture predicted, he raised from the dead. The third day is found in Hosea 6, 2. After two days, he will lift us up. Further fortifying their faith and alleviating their doubts, Paul appeals to the many eyewitnesses, not just two or three, but 500 plus eyewitnesses of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Verse 5, moreover, he was seen by Kepha, that's Peter, Cephas, then by the twelve. Then he was seen by more than 500 people at one time, many of whom are still alive, some of whom have fallen asleep, which means died. Then he was seen by James, and then by all the other apostles. Last of all, like an aborted fetus who was given life, Paul says, he even appeared to me. Now let me throw this little item into the mix. Does this way Paul operates and the way he spoke, it could be he pictured himself as a miscarried fetus or an aborted fetus who was given life which if anything shows the unconditionality of grace and the gift of life, that does. But does does this offer hope or the possibility or even the probability that aborted or miscarried fetuses will also be given life in the resurrection? That's a question that actually is legitimately asked. I think, yeah, is the answer. I think the answer is yes. I believe the answer is is yes. And will there be condemnation? No. 1 Corinthians 15. 9. I say this, Paul says, because I'm the least. He was seen last by me because I'm the least of the apostles. And he's not being mockly humble here. He's not mocking up humility. And he said, and I'm not even worthy to be classified as an apostle because I persecuted the community of God. And I love this, and I'll close with this, the Mirror Bible again. The Mirror Bible says, while, while my own doing completely disqualified me, his doing now defines me. If that doesn't capture the whole idea, my, if I was to sum up my whole life, that's what I'd say. My whole calling, my whole whatever it is I do, I don't know, what I, I don't know how to define what I do yet. Are you a preacher? I don't know. Teacher? Theologian? I don't know. Not a theologian. Those, are, those guys are smarter than me. Scholar? Nope. Thinker? Yeah, like to think. But this is what I can say. While my own doing completely disqualified me, His doing now defines me. What is his doing? Grace as a power. When you're weak, then I'm strong. Because the grace becomes powerful in the weak. So he goes on to say, and we'll close, his grace toward me was not for nothing. On the contrary, I've worked harder than all of them. Who? All the other apostles. Pantone, all of them. You could even say put together. I worked harder to the point of exhaustion than all of these guys. Yet not I, but the grace of God that's with me. God's doing. In any case, 
whether it is I or they, he goes back to the whole problem in Corinth. We're of Cephas, we're of Apollos, we're of Paul, we're of Jesus exclusively. He said, look, it doesn't matter whether it is I or they, so we preached and so you believed. It doesn't matter. God elicits the faith when the gospel is preached. If it's preached by Kepha, if it's preached by Apollos, if it's preached by Paulos, if it's preached by Timothy or Silas or one of you, or it's read, I was going to say read in a tract, but I haven't read a tract yet that has this gospel in it. So the Mirror Bible, once again, is helpful in here in grasping the sense. He says, whether you came to faith through my preaching or someone else's is not important. And with this, Paul returns to his original theme and exhortation to unity and his caution against sects and factions built around preachers. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12, just give us tracks to run on for tomorrow. Now, if Christ is preached as resurrected from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If Christ is individually raised, then that means all of humanity was raised in him. So how can you say that there, if Christ is raised from the dead, how can you say that there is no universal resurrection from the dead, no universally no bodily resurrection for the future. How can you say that? The two are linked. They have a solidarity. There's no separation between the individual resurrection of the man Jesus and the universal resurrection of all humankind. You cannot say, well, yeah, Jesus is risen, but we're not going to be raised. How can you say that? If Christ is preached as resurrected from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Quote, close quote. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Do you know what he's doing? And he does it over and over and over again. He gives solidarity or unity. He makes one, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, with the universal resurrection of all humankind unto life. Is Paul a universalist? If I read this passage, I'd have to say, yeah, he is. He's a Trinitarian universalist, not a Unitarian universalist. I think that's as far enough we'll go tonight. That's as far as we'll go. Except to say, verse 14, I translated all this today. He says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is empty and your faith is vain. Moreover, we'd be found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he resurrected the Christ whom he did not raise, if indeed the dead are not resurrected. He, sees, he does it again and again and again. The resurrected body of Jesus Christ witnessed by the apostles and by 500 people at one time, though some are alive and some are, some are asleep, Paul said at that time, is the future of all humanity. The raised body of Jesus Christ fascinates me because it is the future of all humanity. It's my future. And it's particularly fascinating to me that I can eat in this resurrection body. Give me some honey and some fish. Simple carbs and protein. That's not fitting with all the dietary books I've been reading lately. Really? Give me honeycomb, and I'll take the honeycomb. You can have the fish. Give me honeycomb. That's all. If there's no, the mirror Bible puts it correctly, universal resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been resurrected. You see what he's doing? He keeps doing it over and over and over again. Jesus' resurrection body is a picture of your future. It's the picture of the future of evildoers who will be transformed by the grace of God. It is a future picture of those who do good that by the grace of God accomplish deeds in the power of Christ. It is the future of all the human race and it is the future as the transfiguration indicates of all of creation. If we understand the cosmic dimension of the justification of the ungodly. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we pray that this doctrine will be solidified and go from obscurity to clarity in our souls and our minds. 
that we might see more and more, and all this is directed in one direction, all this is directed toward one goal, toward one telos, toward one objective. And that is for us to see a vision in our hearts, a redemptive revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and of his cross in its universal impact. And that as a result, we will be abounding in hope and joy in the believing of these truths.